talking to people in Florida, they really love Ron DeSantis and they don't know what to make about the fact that Trump now hates Ron DeSantis. They're like, he shouldn't be attacking him, but they still love Trump more than Ron DeSantis. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, April 6th. Today, I'm joined by Tara Palmieri from Florida, where Donald Trump is plotting his next moves after being arrested and charged this week with over 30 felonies in his home state of New York. Tara has the inside dirt on why Republicans think this latest scandal might make Trump unbeatable in the 2024 Republican primary, even if general election voters are fed up with the orange man. And later, Julia Alexander and Ben Landy discuss the media controversy over Amazon's streaming numbers and whether its Lord of the Rings series was actually a success. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Thursday, everybody. I know you might be overdosing on Trump this week, but guess what? We got more for you. I'm joined by Tara Palmieri, who's actually in Florida, where Trump gave a uh, grievance-filled speech on Tuesday night after his arrest in New York. Tara, how are you doing? How's Florida? It's hot. I think that they said this is one of the <laughs> hottest days of the season. It's like 88 degrees, but I like it. So Tara, Trump gave a speech last night. They're obviously raising tons of money for his presidential campaign off of this, saying they're under attack. They sent out a, an email with a fake mugshot on it saying not guilty, which was what his plea was uh, in Manhattan criminal court on the Tuesday. What do Republicans there in Florida around Donald Trump Think about all this, because I know publicly they're saying, ha, 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 this helps him win the Republican primary. 
They've got to be a little concerned, right? Yeah, I think they know it, it hurts him in a general election. But everyone also just thinks like it's so far away. It's hard to say mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. the economy is going to be like when he's up against Biden. I think the, the general understanding is that it really does sort of freeze the field for Trump. Hmm. I guess there's also questions about whether there'll be more indictments that come down. And there's definitely a sense that, yes, this helps him win the Republican nomination. But no one can deny the fact that it's not great for the general election. But they are also hopeful, wondering what it will be like in six months. Like, could he be exonerated within six months? That could be another thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, these are GOP voters. They are probably a bit more bullish on Trump. But I, I still maintain the idea that, you know, all the drama really puts off independence And those are the people you need to win the election, the actual general election. So it's not a great thing for the GOP. But the party is really getting behind Trump, all angles of it. Um, A lot of people are pointing to this statement by the former FBI director, Andrew McCabe. He said on CNN that he didn't even think it was a strong case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of Republicans are sharing that around. And I think... They think this is not a terrible thing. Now, Trump, of course, I mean, how could you be okay with being indicted? Like, it's just a... (laughs) Right. Yeah, Yeah, it's not a great thing. I also think ultimately it will hurt him in the general election. But I think the silence from Democrats is pretty telling, too. Like, they don't want to be seen as dunking on him. You know, all they keep saying is no one is above the law. But they're not really talking about the details because, like we talked about before... It's not really a messaging opportunity. They don't really want to talk about Stormy Daniels and this old Mm -hmm. case. Mm -hmm. They'd rather talk about the other cases. But I think at the end of the day, it's certainly if you if you could pick your candidate, this is a way to do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, someone who probably doesn't want to talk about Stormy Daniels very much is uh, Melania Trump, who is notably absent from that speech at Mar-a-Lago on Tuesday. But uh, you and I have been going back and forth on the question of Trump versus DeSantis, I've been making the point, which doesn't necessarily disagree with you, that, you know, DeSantis, first of all, hasn't announced yet, but like his negatives aren't going up. Feels like the reason Trump is gaining steam is just because he's at the center of attention. Republicans still generally like him, even if they're open to other options. But I went and looked at the real clear politics average of the 2024 race. And since the indictment was announced, I mean, Trump has gone from 44 percent in Republican polls of 2024 to 50% in the average. And DeSantis has dropped about six points too. Like they're going in opposite directions, which proves out your point here. Totally. And I also think there's a new conversation going on from the reporting trip I'm on in Florida. There's Mm -hmm. been a real narrative shift. It's now sort of not when Ron DeSantis will announce, more like if. I think there are questions Mm -hmm. right now if he would actually run. If it's just so clear that his direction is downward and Trump's is up. I think there's a New Hampshire poll that shows him with a 13-point lead over DeSantis. At one point in February, DeSantis was beating Trump in the polls in in New Mm -hmm. Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like the directionally people are starting to wonder, should DeSantis sit this one out and wait for 2028 since Trump can only run once unless he changes the law and figures out <laughs> a way to run twice? <laughs> Not plausible. <laughs> but I think you're right. I mean, there this is such a critical moment for Ron DeSantis. And the money thing has to be a factor. You know, as of this taping, Trump's probably raised $12 million dollars. Of the indictment. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's in, you know, a matter of days. Nikki Haley announced the other day that she's raised, what, like $11 million since since she announced. But that's since she's announced. And that's 
some small donors and some big donors who like her. I mean, DeSantis is going to have to find a way to compete with that kind of money if he runs. And it's almost like you can get that far with big donors, but you can only go back so many times for those big checks. And Trump can just keep ringing the cash register on the internet with small donors, which has always been such a strength for him. But what about the 200 million that Ron DeSantis has right now in the bank? Well, some of it's in the super PAC, but still, Mm -hmm. that's a lot of money. It is, but can he transfer all of that to a federal campaign account? I don't know, I don't think so. And you're right, you're limited in what you can do with a super PAC. Right, yeah, I mean, I'm not, yeah. There is one candidate out there who can be competitive with Donald Trump and it's Ron DeSantis. Neither of us are saying he like will or won't run, that he's like totally dead or whatever. I'm just saying like, there's just a lot flying around at the moment. And (laughs) he's got to, look, if he has the conviction to run, he has to have the ability to cut through everyday news cycles, to take the long view and just place a bet that like, this is my best opportunity to run and really just stick with it because Trump is just going to dominate so many news cycles. And DeSantis has to just sort of knuckle through that stuff. And this will just be a good test for him. Totally. And the other thing, too, is, you know, his big abortion law ban that was passed through the legislature, six week abortion ban, his permitless conceal carry bill that just passed. There was really not a lot of press about that. It was kind of ignored. And those are pretty mm-hmm. extreme MAGA positions to take, which he clearly is doing to feed the Republican base. And it mm-hmm. barely got maybe a headline or two, did not dominate mm-hmm. the news cycle. And if anything, the story was about his fight with Bob Iger, who called him anti-Florida. And, <laughs> you know, no, seriously, though, the Disney fight was yeah. elevated above these pretty extreme red meat legislative wins, if you want to put them that way, that would you know, appeal to a MAGA base, but they're so busy looking at Trump being escorted through the courtroom that DeSantis lost like a big news cycle. And if anything, all that the donor class, who he also needs to win over the inside game, all they're hearing is this guy's anti-business, anti-Florida. And it kind of goes to the, the hit against him that he's he's running his state. It's like a big government type. So it's interesting. But I have been hearing from donors and, and people, they're kind of trying to convince DeSantis to stand down. Speaking of just being blotted out, I was watching Fox News yesterday. That's how I decided to watch the Trump speech. Trump timed this, so he came out at 8.15 p.m. Eastern. That's in the Tucker Carlson Mm -hmm. hour. And for the whole run-up, even in the previous hour with Jesse Waters, they had a camera trained on the podium. They were interviewing guests. They were talking about how Mm -hmm. this, this indictment was a sham. This arrest is a joke. All the other networks, even CNN is saying that this indictment is thin. I mean, it was treated with like the pomp and circumstance of a state of the union address. And it was literally crazier because it was 24 hours of coverage. Yeah. Helicopters. But I'm saying like Fox was just giving their coverage over to Donald Trump. And if you remember like last year and a little bit earlier this year, like Ron DeSantis was the one getting booked all the time, and Trump was cranky that DeSantis was on Fox all the time. Fox News is such a direct pipeline to Republican primary voters, and it really just showed that Fox like sees this as an opportunity for ratings, probably, but they're not willing to just like turn the page on Donald Trump, and DeSantis had to see that coverage and be like, oh my God, I have <laughs> an uphill battle here uh, if I get in this race. Yeah, and just to follow up on the thing I mentioned with the donors. Another thing that I heard is that they're ready, the ones who don't want Trump, they're ready to back another horse if DeSantis isn't the guy. 
and they're fully willing to at least you know support two people not because of any loyalty to DeSantis I don't think I think he has a lot of money behind him but I don't think he has a lot of loyalty behind him either Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. even if he gets in the race and he's seen as struggling a lot of these big names like Ken Griffin, Steve Schwarzman, they they've made it known they're willing to back somebody else at you know later on in the game. So right, right. Yeah, if I was Ron DeSantis, it's it's amazing what 3 months can do in a in a political cycle because he was the hottest thing in February, right? In January and now it feels like his star is fading and we'll see. Anything can change as you know. Yep. But yeah, I mean it just needs to be said again. If DeSantis wants to run, he has to take the long view that he can make a compelling case to Republicans that he's Trump without the baggage, but also that he can win in a general election. And like, you know, he can still make the case down the road plausibly that like, hey, the other guy's under indictment. Uh, The other guy is facing criminal charges. The other guy might be a felon and I'm not. And if you look at the polls, CNN had a poll. Yeah, primary voters, like it just needs to be said, the general election voters, two thirds of independent voters support these charges. Donald Trump's unfavorable rating is as low as it's been since January 6th. Like he is deeply, 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 deeply unpopular with most Americans. He is the most unpopular political figure in the entire country. And as the possibly the election in Wisconsin the other night with the judicial race showed, Republicans keep losing. They keep losing at the polls. And DeSantis like has to keep that as his North Star that like Trump might be dominating the Republican primary and getting all the media attention right now, but he is a loser in elections. And that's got to be his case. And donors, like that, it seems like that's the, the case donors want to make too, but it's up to DeSantis to sort of get over that hill. But then at the, at the same time, you see these Republican primary voters, they don't care about electability. They actually don't care. This is not something. So trying to reason with them will alienate them and make them angry. So if he's going to say, I'm the most electable, that's going to piss them off. It's funny, you know, talking to people in Florida, they really love Ron DeSantis and they don't know what to make about the fact. Like, I'm just talking to regular voters. They love Ron DeSantis, but they don't know what to make of the fact that Trump now hates Ron DeSantis. They're like, he shouldn't be attacking him, but they're still they still love Trump more than Ron DeSantis. Trump is still the Coke. Ron is the Diet Coke. And that is just like <laughs> the feeling on the ground. They don't know what to make of it. Like, I don't like that he attacks the Santas, but it's Trump. That's who they like. And these are Floridians that appreciate Ron, I guess. They like him a lot. It's not as culty as Trump, though. And that's the thing. He yeah. doesn't have the cult following. And that, dear listeners, is the word from Florida. Tara, thank you so much. You're on the road traveling, doing some reporting. Thank yeah. you for joining me on the Hanging from the palm trees. No big deal. <laughs> Sounds delightful. I'll grab you a coconut. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks, Tara. <laughs> when we come back, Julia Alexander is here to talk Amazon. Welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Julia Alexander. Julia, I wanted to have you on to talk about Amazon Prime Video, which has struggled a bit with some of its original shows and movies. And I want to talk to you specifically about Rings of Power, their Lord of the Rings show, which, if you include all the money that Amazon paid for the rights, is probably one of the most expensive series of all time. So Kim Masters of The Hollywood Reporter had a great story this week about some of the confusion and finger pointing and second guessing around Amazon Studios 
over their content strategy. But I want to get your broader perspective on this because for sure they have thrown a ton of money around at shows and at talent, probably overpaid for some of these things. A lot of these shows and showrunners haven't boosted engagement. But how much trouble is Amazon in really? Because I feel like we've heard similar critiques about Netflix. We've definitely heard it about Apple TV. Is there anything unique about the challenge that's facing Amazon? What's interesting about Amazon Prime Video specifically is you have to break it up into two entities. There is its role within the domestic market, which is the United States, to an extent Canada, but really the US. Um, And then there is its role in kind of these key international countries and especially emerging territories. Um, A a key one, as we talk about with all streaming services, kind of being India, right? Like India is this holy grail in terms of um, where they're really trying to establish their base. And what's interesting about the difference in between these two is that we consider Amazon as an e-commerce business. Like you go to Amazon typically to buy something and then there happens to be the prime video business. This is not to suggest that people in the States do not watch Prime Video content. Of course they do. They go and they watch it and they have, whether it's the Yankees, whether it's Thursday Night Football, whether it is Rings of Power, whatever it might be, they are watching it. But Amazon is still predominantly a e-commerce business. Internationally, Prime Video is actually the stronger driver of Amazon customers. People sign up for Prime Video as a service the way that we sign up for Netflix. It's a pure video play. Um, This is in part due to a lack of two-day shipping, for example, in certain countries where if you're ordering something on Amazon, it is not necessarily quick. Um, This is due to cultural differences where e-commerce as a style is just not um, something that people have really adopted. There are regulations in certain countries, including India, where e-commerce gets really difficult. And so if you're Amazon, the point of Prime Video globally is really to continue growing your subscriber base um, at a kind of pretty significant rate compared to what you're kind of seeing in the United States, where although we do see increases in subscribers and customers within the Prime Video sphere, it really is, again, that retail business. And so I think when we talk about the troubles that Amazon might face in its Prime Video segment, the real question is, how does this impact Amazon Prime Video on an international scale versus a Netflix or a Disney Plus that are pure video plays as well, both internationally and domestically? Yeah, that's so interesting because that's sort of the the opposite of how I use it and how most people I know in the U.S. use it, which is that Amazon Video is sort of nice to have, but Amazon Prime, the service, is need to have. Exactly. And so when we look at some of these numbers that come out in this Hollywood Reporter story, right, and the the big one that everybody was focusing on is this completion rate for Rings of Power. Rings of Power, to Ben's point, easily the most expensive Amazon Prime video series, including when we take or we take into account what they spent on rights. Um, But there was only a 37 percent completion rate, according to Kim Masters of The Hollywood Reporter, domestically 45 percent completion rate globally. This is kind of in par with what we saw at Parrot Analytics, where demand for um, where I work as uh, as director of strategy, um, demand for Rings of Power was almost triple what it uh, internationally than what it was domestically. Domestically, it really struggled against House of the Dragon. And internationally, although House of the Dragon from HBO still performed slightly better than Rings of Power, that divide was much less. And so if you kind of take into that account, right, that 45% completion rate, almost 50% internationally versus 37% domestically, we're seeing that in other third-party data as well. So that feels pretty good. The issue with trying to judge Amazon Prime Video as a service as a whole and its success or Rings of Power's success as a whole on a completion rate is that 
it's really hard to benchmark that to other levels of completion rates that we then describe as successes or failures. So one of my good friends uh, who runs a website called What's on Netflix, a guy named Casey Moore, he's an analyst, he pulls together completion rates for Netflix series all the time. And typically what he finds is that if it sits above 60%, it's likely going to get renewed for a second season or a third season, whatever it might be. If it falls below that, so something like Resident Evil was at 45%, that was canceled. And he kind of goes through and he kind of tries to figure out after the third episode performance, you know, how likely is it that the show is going to be renewed or, or it's going to be canceled. And I bring that up because we've kind of, we, meaning analysts in the industry, have kind of used Netflix as a way to benchmark the success of a show based on completion rate. But the issue is that within Amazon, especially considering that this is a show that they spent a ton of money on to have the rights, this is a big franchise play for them, not just within this series, but probably other series, potentially merchandising opportunities, ancillary revenue, that 37% completion rate is only a fraction of the puzzle that we really need to understand in terms of declaring rings of power, success, or failure. And I think the hyper-focus on that gets away from how difficult understanding the economics of success in streaming actually are. Yeah, to, to your point, I mean, Jennifer Salke, who, who runs all of Prime Video, she's said already, we're committed to five seasons of this show. They, they've invested so much money, they really want to make this a tentpole for the entire service. So I don't think it's going away. I don't think there's danger there. But of course, that, that 37% number generated a lot of bad headlines for Amazon. It got people talking about the success of this show. One thing that occurred to me after you, you had published a, a newsletter on this topic the other day is that Amazon did push the show really, really hard. I mean, there were banner ads on the app, on Amazon's homepage, all of their marketing materials. It was a really, really big promotional event that happened here. And I do wonder if the lower completion rate is possibly an artifact of more and more people trying the show out of curiosity than the number of genre fans that you would expect to finish it. So you had a ton of people starting it because they they saw the promotional material. Not all of these are Lord of the Rings people. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. They don't finish it. Is it possible that that drove down this number and is making it look worse than, than it really is? Absolutely. You know what? You said that to me and I thought it was an excellent point. I think like that's something that we need to take into account is the level of marketing that was spent on the first two episodes, right? The, the ability to get everyone on that Friday to kind of go and once they're visiting Amazon Prime, again, in the US, they're going to shop. They're typically going to order something and they're seeing all these banner ads or, or they're opening up Prime Video and it's the main thing in their carousel and they click out of curiosity. And if they're not really gripped within those first two, three episodes, you know, why continue versus the legion of Lord of the Rings fans who say, Say, actually, I, I am interested in this and I'm going to finish it. The other complex thing about looking at completion rate is we still do this thing in the industry. And this is something that I could speak at length about, and I will try to do it very quickly, where we try to ascertain that viewership is the only metric that matters. And to an extent, if you're thinking about advertisers, that absolutely is true, right? If you're an advertiser and you're looking at a completion rate and you're not looking at where you want to place your ad or where episode you're going to be on, if you're on episode seven and you know, you're not getting that many people by, by episode seven, it's a really concerning thing if you're an advertiser. But the thing about the viewership number is that it was always built for advertisers. It was always built to understand kind of where those audiences were coming in from. 
when we look at something like Rings of Power, there are so many other questions that, that really matter about the level of success. Did it bring, you know, I've talked about this before on the podcast, did it bring in new subscribers that are considered high value to Amazon because it's part of a taste cluster that Amazon couldn't reach? Globally, did it increase the number of Prime Video subscribers because it was a big IP show? So even if they didn't finish it, they did sign up for Prime Video and then they can kind of be brought into the, the further Amazon ecosystem. You know, did it retain high churn risk customers who are therefore the most high value customers you know did those shows even if they didn't have a high completion rate did they all lead to more amazon series being discovered maybe somebody started rings of power wasn't super into it but then watched the wild or then watched jack reacher and they were really into that and so this was the show that brought them in and although they might not have finished it they are watching other shows potentially to completion did it increase the perceived value of Prime Video as a service? Did it get you to actually open the app and go in and spend some time in it? All of these questions need to be included in the benchmarking for success when we think about all these different platforms. And the problem is we don't have a unified measurement, right? We don't have a Nielsen. That is, I mean, ironically, we have a Nielsen for a lot of this, but it, that just measures viewership. We don't have a Nielsen that's like, here's what all of these platforms need to see from a customer acquisition, a customer retention, and a customer customer engagement standpoint to really say this is successful. It is sort of funny that we're still litigating the success of Rings of Power months and months after that first season ended. But of course, this was a really big bet by Amazon Studios. They say it was their most successful show of all time in terms of the total viewers who watched it. They did want this to be their Game of Thrones, which is maybe why they sort of hubristically put it up against House of Dragon, the, the Game of Thrones prequel, which aired at basically the same time. In retrospect, do you think that that was a mistake? Um, do you think they were sort of overconfident in, in pairing those shows? Is it possible that in the end that, that ended up detracting from the total potential viewership of the show? I think that there was a healthy competition, obviously, between the two <laughs> from the pre-marketing, right? Like, I think there was a healthy competition. I also do think... They were looking at a summer blockbuster. I know that Amazon didn't necessarily want to run up against House of the Dragon. And so there was a two-week difference in the premieres. I think that was kind of their way of determining, okay, well, if we can get in, you know, slightly. I think they came out just before House of the Dragon or, or just right after. I think if it's like if we can have a slightly different premiere date while the show hasn't even started or while it's kind of in the middle of the season, then we can maybe find a way to garner this new audience based on the fact that it's a fresh series. You know, did it hurt Rings of Power to kind of be consistently compared against House of the Dragon? If the show was as liked as much as House of the Dragon, if both shows were scoring a 90% in terms of viewership rating, if they were kind of sitting at this really high sentiment, it wouldn't necessarily matter that both were on. People will make time for shows they want to watch. And I think if you look at, again, these third-party websites that, that collect these kind of mass consumer ratings, you can kind of see, well, the issue with Rings of Power was that people just weren't as invested in it. I have a lot of friends, like I'm sure you do, Ben, who are big Lord of the Rings fans. And even they were like, this is, I just don't like the show. And like, I'm going to watch it because I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, but it's just not fun versus House of the Dragon really had this advantage of capturing TikTok. People were really into it. They were into the characters. They were into the way that the show was shot. Like it really had that 
for lack of a better term, that HBO-esque quality to it. And so people were kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm invested in it. But the show itself was actually better, well received from a consumer standpoint, not just from a critical standpoint. And I think that hurt Rings of the Power more than anything else. And, and I, I think we need to be really careful of separating Rings of Power's performance from Amazon Prime Video Slate as a whole in that performance. And what's interesting about that is if you look at a lot of the Prime Video top performers, right? It's like Jack Reacher, it's the boys. Like it's these types of shows that are not as expensive as Rings rings of power but actually have found meaningful audiences for amazon prime video and i suspect you know if i'm amazon that i would be much more invested in kind of finding new types of superhero shows that are a little bit lower budget i would be interested in finding new procedurals that might really be speaking to that audience and kind of trying to expand within that division Rings of Power is their big IP play. It's like, we need an IP. We want, we, we bought the rights to it. We think there's something really special here. And it's also far too early to say it's a major flop for them. We really have to see that second season and third season performance. So although those numbers are jarring, one, just a good reminder, it is not a full benchmark for success for that show. Two, that show is not representative of all of Prime Video. Uh, and three, it can take a while for a show to build up and really find its audience. The issue is that they've spent a lot of money on it, but I think it's too early to count it out. Well, I'm rooting for Rings of Power. I'm a big fan over here. I want to make sure this podcast is a, a safe space for Lord of the Rings and, and people who enjoyed that show. We're going to get five seasons in a movie and then we can reassess. <laughs> Julia, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.